Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to Leading Edge Love Radio. This is your host, Sumati Sparks, the Open Relationship Coach. Have you ever wondered how well-suited you are for ethical non-monogamy? Well, you can find out by taking my quiz, and you can find the quiz right on the homepage of my website. That's sumatisparks.com, S as in Sam, U, M as in Mary, A, T as in Tom, I, Sparks as in Sparks are Flying. And when you request the quiz, you'll be automatically added to my mailing list, and you'll be the first to learn about all of my virtual events and to receive occasional helpful tidbits of advice and information to add more love, passion, and joy into your life. So today is an interesting day. I was going to have as my guest Esther Zazaro. Um, I was really excited because I was going to have my first international guest calling in from Australia, but it doesn't seem like my blog talk radio can take an international caller, so she wasn't able to call into the show, unfortunately. Um, maybe I can fix that later. We can try again in a few weeks. But for today, no Esther. Sorry, everybody, if you were looking forward to her. But I do have a special surprise. I'm going to share with you something I'm working on for a future class and probably a book. And it's called the ABCs of ENM. ENM stands for Ethical Non-Monogamy. And it's kind of an umbrella term that we use that kind of um, covers all of the different terms um, for people that are practicing any form of non-monogamous relationships. Uh, It could be swinging, it could be open relationships, it could be polyamory, um, could be solo polyamory. I'm not sure if people who are practicing relationship anarchy consider themselves ethical non-monogamous because non-monogamy kind of has a feel of that it's kind of centered around being sexual and relationship anarchists value all of their relationships equally, even their non-sexual ones. So that mode of relating may not be under this umbrella, but just about everything else is under the umbrella of ethical non-monogamy. And um, so I'm calling this the ABCs of ENM. And I started a workshop uh, last year that just covered A, B, and C. And recently, I've been fleshing that out to the entire alphabet. So I wanted to share some of the things that I've come up with. And, you know, this is just an hour-long show, so we won't get to all of them. Um, but we can touch on most of them. And then my, my additional surprise is that I have a former metamor who is now a super close friend who's going to be calling in the show a little bit later. And we're going to talk about the metamor relationship. And we were planning a workshop together on that before the pandemic happened. So we're going to share a little bit about mastering the metamor relationship. And for those of you that don't know, the metamor is your partner's other partner. So usually you're not lovers with your metamor because then that would make them a paramour. <laughs> and then you would all be polyfamily. Um, polyfamily is also kind of a loose term. You don't necessarily have to be having sex with everyone to be in your polyfamily. Um, but the metamor is typically someone that you're not, that you don't have like a deep, intimate sexual relationship with, but you have an intimate, loving friendship of some degree. It can be, well, that's not true. Your metamor is just your metamor regardless of how close you are to them. (laughs) How close you are to them doesn't 
mean that they're your metamor or not. Your metamor is just somebody who's your partner's or partner. Um, sometimes it can be somebody you've never met. Sometimes it can be somebody that you have a close and intimate friendship with. And my guest today, Amy, is somebody who I have a very intimate friendship with. Even though we're not metamors anymore, um, that has continued on, which is really beautiful. And that's one of the wonderful things about ethical non-monogamy is that we, um, you know, things may not work out with our lovers, but we can still stay close with other people in the circle that we met. And we can also stay close with our lovers when we're not lovers anymore. And that's one of the things that I want to talk about on my list is the ex relationship. You know, we talk about our exes. And oftentimes in the default world, we think of our exes as somebody who we, you know, we don't get along with. We, you know, tolerate them or maybe don't talk to them at all. But a lot of um, people who who are polyamorous or, or practice ENM um, stay close to their their partners even after the, the sexual relationship has ended. And I have a partner like that. I call him my post-romantic partner, <laughs> my PRP. <laughs> so we're still very, very close. We still feel like we are life partners. We we share other intimate things in our life, things that are really important to us, um, but we don't share romantic sexual connection anymore. Um, so that's one of the things on my list as well is talking about our exes and how we navigate that in ethical non-monogamy. So that's my little intro. Let me get started. So the ABCs of polyamory started out as A was for self-awareness, so A for awareness. And self-awareness is really important, and that's why I have it as the number one thing. Because if you're just going around irresponsibly hooking up with people and thinking that you're polyamorous, um, you're going to be hurting people, and you're going to ultimately hurt yourself and your reputation. So it's really good to have a lot of awareness around what you're doing and what you want. You know, what kind of a non-monogamist are you? There's so many flavors and variations of how to be. Like I said earlier, you could, you could be a swinger. You could be, um, you know, somebody who wants polyfidelity. You know, that's where you have more than one lover in a closed group where you're kind of monogamous within this group. You don't see other people. Um, or you could be polyamorous where you have one or two really deep loving partnerships, but you've all agreed that you can also go to play parties and um, have more casual sex with people as well. So there's so many different flavors. In fact, I was just sharing with someone yesterday. She asked me, what did I learn from all from all my years of polyamory, which has been coming up on 24 years for me now. And I said, well, one of the things is that there's a lot of nuances of how we, we do polyamory. You know, just because my partner and I are both non-monogamous doesn't mean we're both doing it the same way. And my first two partners, we were dramatically different in how we did it. One person wanted to see sex workers and only be with other people when he was out of town on vacation and have, like, vacation flings. And I wanted, you know, one or more ongoing love relationships. And then my next partner, I wanted the same thing, but he wanted just as many casual hookups as he could possibly fit into his life. 
And when we broke up, he said, at least I didn't love any of my partners. <laughs> and I said, how are you superior to me for not loving the people you have sex with? So we just really had different notions of what it meant to be open. So then my next significant long-term non-monogamous relationship, I thought we were on the same page because we seemed like we both had other deep love connections. We both liked to flirt and we both weren't very possessive. But what I learned after many years with him was that I wanted more what we're now calling kitchen table polyamory. We didn't have a name for it back then. But kitchen table polyamory is when you can sit at the kitchen table with all the people that you're connected with, either your lovers, your metamors, and anybody else that's intimately connected to your circle, and you can all sit around and kind of talk about your feelings and what your needs are and if there's any issues going on, and you can all try to find a win-win around it. And my partner at the time seemed to want the same thing, but when it came down to it, he really just wanted to do separate dyads. So it wasn't like I never met his other lovers. In fact, I socialized with them. We were in groups together. But when it came down to actually talking about our feelings and our needs and trying to feel heard by everyone, they, they weren't available for that. He and his other partners weren't really available for that. It was kind of a take it or leave it. So I left. <laughs> So that's what I learned is that over the years, I learned, I became very aware, we're on the A again, the A of the ABCs, I became very aware of how I need to do non-monogamy. And for example, I won't date people who have a don't ask, don't tell with their partner because that means that I can never negotiate with them around seeing them on their birthday or going on a vacation with them or seeing what their partner needs and making sure that they're happy. None of those things can even happen because I'm supposed to not even exist. Um, I won't date somebody who has the veto with a primary partner. Um, I really prefer not to even date people with primary partners, um, but, you know, I do make exceptions sometimes for people that have a lot of experience and really understand and grasp something that we call couples privilege, where couples seem to feel like their relationship is more important than the one that's not in the couple. So the one that's not in the couple feels lesser, like a lesser human being, like they're not valued as much. So hierarchy can be really hard on the person who's not the primary. So I I tread lightly in those kinds of relationships now from my experience. So self-awareness is a big one. And as a coach now, I like to think that I can help people determine what style they want sooner than it took me you know it took me about 10 years to get clear about that but now that I know about all these different ways of being I can help people figure it out and sometimes you do have to go out and start dating for a while if you've never done it before just go out and throw some spaghetti on the wall and see what sticks you know like try some stuff out come back check in with me or one of your other experienced friends and see how it felt and make adjustments as you go until you figure out what is the best modality or style for you to practice non-monogamy and just don't get so attached don't get so deep into the relationship and realize that this isn't the right structure for you so that's what I help my clients do is I help them put a toe in the water see how it felt come back and I work with single people as well as people in couples um, or moresomes and 
as they open their relationship and start dating other people or singles start dating people at all, I help them figure out what modality they want to do and put a toe in the water, come back out, see how that felt, check in, make adjustments. And it's never going to be perfect. Relationships are not science projects. They're not, it's not a math problem. You know, it's more like a dance. It's more like a tango where you need to feel it as you go and see if you're vibing with the rhythm and, you know, if you're stepping on each other's toes back off a little. So it's more like a partner dance with yourself and with your partners. So there's no right or wrong way. These are just suggestions to try. And a lot of times we try relationship structures because we think it will help us to not have to feel our pain. And a lot of our strategies in life are, you know, ways to avoid feeling pain, and it's just unavoidable. Um, as I say in my jealousy workshop, um, pain is a natural, normal part of being human, but suffering can be avoided if we don't make up stories about it. Okay, so back to the ABCs. <laughs> that was a long tangent. Um, the next one is B. So B in the ABCs of ENM stands for boundaries. And boundaries kind of go along with the self-awareness piece, like what kind of non-monogamy do you want? And once you're clear about that, then you have to set boundaries and hold your boundaries. And so many people, especially those that are more um, anxiously attached or, you know, have an experience, a, a prior um, experience in their life of severe abandonment or rejection, will push past, push past their boundaries too long and they'll put up with things that are causing harm to them. So having really clear and strong boundaries is super important. And one thing I like to say is in ethical non-monogamy, you never really have to break up with anybody if you're doing, one of, if you're doing all three of the following things. One is you're speaking your truth. You don't have to be mean. You can speak your truth using I statements, sharing how things feel to you vulnerably, you know, knowing that, that your truth may be hard and scary for your partner to hear, but you don't have to say it in a cruel way. You can still say it in a way that's honest and vulnerable. And then being someone who your partner can tell their truth to. Can your partner tell you their truth without you freaking out or making them wrong? or having like a huge meltdown so that they're afraid to tell you in the future. So can you speak your truth to your partner? Can you hear your partner's truth without making it so hard that they'll never want to tell you again? And the third thing, holding your boundaries. So I'll give you an example. So let's say you're in a partnership and your partner says to you, I want you to meet my new lover. And you say, I really don't like that person, but I'm not going to stand in the way of you having a relationship with them if you feel like you need that for whatever reason. I don't know why. I don't know why you want to be with that person, but if that's what your soul is calling, <laughs> go ahead. Have at it. But I don't want to meet that person. I just don't want to be in their life. And your partner says, well, I really need you to meet my partner because I don't want to do polyamory unless we all know each other's partners. And you say, well, I'm not going to meet them. Sorry. You know, you could choose to break up with me if you want, but I'm not going to meet your partner. 
So, you know, that's the boundary that you're holding. Like you're clear that you don't want to meet their that particular partner of theirs. And they may end up leaving you or they may end up getting really mad at you for a long time and throwing a fit, but, you know, that's okay. Just hold the space for them and say, I'm sorry that this is hard for you, but I just am not willing to meet them. So, you know, that's where you, you need to separate from their reaction and just know that it's, it's something, it's a request they've made you're not willing to fill. And can you live peacefully with each other knowing that you have different desires around that? And that's a challenge, you know, that's a real challenge when your partner's upset about something, but we have to not be so enmeshed with our partners that when they get upset, somehow that means that we have to change our behavior. You don't have to change your behavior if your partner's upset. You can still be loving to them, hold the space for them, let them know you care, let them know you see them, you see that this is really hard for them but it doesn't mean you have to change your behavior. So boundaries are really, really important in ethical non-monogamy, and you'll never get taken advantage of if you know your boundaries and you hold them. Okay, the C of the ABCs is we get three Cs, not just one, but three. (laughs) Okay, the first C is communication. And, you know, I interviewed somebody on, on this podcast one time who said, I'm just a one trick pony. All I teach is communication. So for a lot of coaches, we believe that communication is kind of everything. So communication, first you have to have it. You know, you have to have the lines of communication open with any relationship, really. But so many long-term monogamous relationships go on and on without much communication, and then they wonder why their sex dries up. Um, So really having time to communicate, and there's a communication technique that I teach called deep heart sharing. And if you email me, um, I told you early on how you can get on my email list. Just go to my website, sumatysparks.com, sign up for the quiz, and you'll automatically be added to my email list. I'm going to be sending out a video soon uh, I'm in the process of making um, that that, uh, goes in-depth demonstration around deep heart sharing. Um, but I can also email you a PDF that just gives you the instructions. So you're welcome to email me and ask for that. Sumati Sparks, sorry, what is my email address? Sumati Sparks at gmail.com. And I can email you the PDF of something called deep heart sharing. And deep heart sharing is something that I recommend couples do any kind of dyad that you're in, somebody that you're seeing regularly, that you meet at least once a week. And you set up a time where you put your phones away, you make sure the kids are taken care of, no distractions, and you really have time to, like, create a safe space to share with each other. Because it's really hard and scary to ask for what you want with your partner. And you don't want to ask for what you want if it's vulnerable when you're just passing in the hallway or, like, cooking in the kitchen together. You want to be in a place where you can really make eye contact and, you know, connect heart-to-heart with your partner. So the deep heart-sharing process gives you a chance to sit down with your partner, breathe together, make eye contact, give each other some appreciation. Um, I teach you in this how to do a heart-share, how to share from your heart. And once your hearts are open and you're really feeling that love for each other, then it becomes so much safer to ask for what you want. And then in the deep heart-sharing process, I teach people how to make a request 
And as I said earlier, making a request, when your partner makes a request, it doesn't mean you have to give it to them. You can answer in a variety of ways. You can say, I'll think about it. You can say, um, you know, yes, but, you know, yes, I'll do that, but I need these things first. Um, you can say, yes, and, you know, yes, I'll do that, and can we also do this? Um, you can say, you can say, hell yes, if it's really easy. You can say, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Um, or you can say no, um, and when, when, you, when you feel like you're a, a total no to your partner's request, then I recommend that you ask more questions. Find out what the underlying need is. Um, in, in nonviolent communication, or NVC, they talk about universal human needs, and you can just Google that, C or nonviolent communication, universal needs, and there's a list of needs, and I tell my clients to print that out and have it next to them as we learn what's, what our real underlying needs are. So I'll give you an example. So we're doing the depart sharing process. We've, we've given each other all these appreciations. We've shared from our hearts. We feel really connected. We've made some simple requests that are easy, like, you know, can you make sure that you let me know if you're not going to be able to pick up the kids? You know, can you please give me like an hour notice if you're not going to be able to do it? It's hard for me to get away in 10 minutes to pick them up, you know. And a partner might say, oh, yeah, I'm sorry when I do that. I'll get better at it. Okay, no big deal. That's a simple request. But then one of the partners might have a request like, um, can my mother move in with us? <laughs> you know, and the other partner might say, uh, no, I really don't want your mother to live with us, but can you tell me what you need around that? Are you worried about her health? Are you afraid that she's feeling lonely? Like, what, what's going on? You know, what are your needs around that, that request? And then hold the space for your partner to share. Like, maybe they're having a huge amount of grief around some physical ailment that their parent has, or really worried and scared about their parent feeling lonely or disabled or something and just hold a space for that and then be on the same team with them and see if you can solve the problem without violating your own boundary of having them move in with you. So that's what I teach in the Depart Sharing is how to make requests. If there's a no, how to negotiate based on your universal needs. And so I love the depart sharing process. I find it to be a very preemptive, uh, prophylactic kind of activity that keeps you from having to utter the dreaded words, we need to talk. <laughs> you know, nobody likes to hear that, we need to talk. So if you know that you have your depart sharing process scheduled on the calendar every Wednesday night or Sunday morning or whenever it is, you can hold on to those little things for a week, knowing that you're going to have that talk then and you'll have plenty of time to hash out those requests and share those things. And even the appreciations that you didn't have time to give during the week, you'll have time to give each other all those appreciations. So it's really important that you carve out that time. Relationships are the hardest things that we do in this lifetime. And they are the things that give us the most mental health, the most happiness, the most fulfillment in our life. They have the biggest payoff. 
So if they are the hardest things to do and they give us the biggest payoff, doesn't it make sense to invest a couple hours a week in nurturing that relationship? And I give this deep heart sharing process to all my clients, and most of them don't do it. I've set up accountability systems with them now where I make them email me and tell me each time they've done it because we're, we get lazy and we take each other for granted. That's just normal and human. And so it's good to have somebody holding you accountable because if you invest that time into your relationship, it's going to pay you back a thousandfold. So um, please reach out to me if you want to know more about the part sharing process. The second C in the ABCs is consent. So consent is a really important topic. It's, it's really become a buzzword lately in the polyamory communities that I hang out with. And um, there still are some communities and some play parties that don't really talk about consent. And unfortunately, it's, it's usually women that get the, the tough end of the stick there. Um, and they don't have any process for when consent is violated. They don't have any way for accountability to happen. So if you are going to enter into any kind of play party community or kink community or um, polyamory community or any kind of dance community, sensual dance community, anything that involves people being embodied, people being sensual, um, people connecting in their bodies, um, be sure that that community has a strong consent policy and an accountability process for if consent does get violated. So all of the things that we do in ethical non-monogamy, there's a reason why it starts with the word ethical. And a lot of people are now calling it consensual non-monogamy. Those two terms are synonymous, ethical non-monogamy or consensual non-monogamy. The word ethical to me just means consensual. Being ethical means consensual. So in other words, cheating by definition is not ethical non-monogamy because your partner doesn't know that you're having sex with someone else. And so that makes it unethical. So ethical non-monogamy means that you're transparent and honest with all the people involved and not just about who you're seeing, but the things that you're doing with your partner as well, make sure that you're getting consent for everything along the way. Somebody who's intoxicated can't give you consent. Somebody who is under age, under legal age, under 18 in this country in the United States, cannot give you consent. And check this one out. While you're having sex, Sex hormones are flooding your brain, so you're kind of intoxicated. You can't give consent in the middle of a sex act either. So, for example, if you negotiate a scene at a party where you're just going to play with kink, you know, for example, maybe you're going to do some rope play, or you're just going to make out, or, you know, you're going to do some degree of sensuality but without intercourse, and then halfway through, the person says, I want to go all the way. And the other person says, oh, yay, awesome, great, and does it. No, that's, that's a consent violation. You can't make a decision when you're under the influence of erotic turn-on hormones. <laughs> so 
So the one who says, hey, I changed my mind, I want to go all the way, whoever has the most conservative boundary, the other person needs to honor that boundary through the entire scene and through the entire sexual session. And then when it's over, talk about how each other's feeling, see what kind of aftercare you need, what kind of communication you need the next day or whatever. Or, you know, it could be even be later in the day, but just have it be a separate conversation when you've come down from the turn on and you're back to like ordinary, an ordinary state of mind. Then you can say like, hey, I think I still do want to go all the way with you, but let's, let's do that in a couple hours or something like that. Okay. All right. So that's my diatribe about consent. <laughs> all right. Let's move on to the third C, which is community. Community is super important if you're practicing ethical non-monogamy. You really want to be in a group of people that normalizes this way of relating. You don't want to um, just rely on your monogamous friends because as you start to practice these alternative relationship styles, you're going to struggle. It's inevitable that you're going to struggle. You're going to make mistakes. might get some experiences of a broken heart and your monogamous friends are going to say, see, I told you not to do that. But nobody ever says after a broken heart, nobody ever says, I told you not to do monogamy. (laughs) Like there's just an assumption that everyone should be monogamous, but we aren't all monogamous. Many of us feel like non-monogamy is our orientation, like being gay. It's just who we are. And so it's not about the relationship style or model. It's about our skills, our communication skills, our boundaries, our awarenesses, all the ABCs that I already talked about. So I highly encourage people to surround themselves with polyamory community. There are polyamory meetups in every major city in the United States and probably in most other parts of the world as well. So just do a Google search if you don't have a community nearby you. And if you don't live in a large city, I recommend that you, well, now that things are opening up after the pandemic in the United States at least, I recommend that you take a road trip at least once a month to the nearest big city and go to their polyamory meetup. And a lot of them are online. They might still be online for a while, so you can still do online meetings. But connect with your local polyamory community and, you know, take it a long drive, you know, a couple-hour drive to the nearest city once a month is not going to kill you. And as you start to make friends there, you'll eventually meet people that live closer to you. Trust me, polyamorous people are everywhere. I have clients in rural areas, remote areas, all over the country. And you'll start to connect in. So look for opportunities to be in community. There's online festivals. I'm going to be speaking at the One World Tantra Festival soon. And there's going to be hundreds of workshops there. And lots of them have breakout sessions where you can meet other people who are into Tantra. Now, not everybody into Tantra is also into polyamory, but there's a lot of crossover. And you can meet sex-positive, like-minded people at Tantra conferences. And there's quite a few of those that have been online lately. So if you want to know about the One World Tantra Festival that's coming up in June, you can email me about that too, symmetrysparks at gmail.com. And just ask me for a link and I'll send you, I've got a discount coupon as well. So feel free to ask me about that. But look for a like-minded community. 
Okay, so those are the ABCs, and we're about halfway through the show, and Amy's going to be coming on soon to talk about the metamorph relationship. But for those of you who joined us late, this is Sumati Sparks, and this is Leading Edge Love Radio. You can find me at sumatisparks.com. And my guest this week did not, uh, was not able to call in because she's from Australia, and we never, I've never had an international guest before, so I didn't know that they weren't able to call into Blog Talk Radio. I might be able to fix it and have her come back in a few weeks. But for now, you just got me and my friend Amy, who's going to come on in a little bit, and we're going to talk about the metamorph relationship. If you have any questions for me or when Amy joins, please feel free to call in as well. And when we have a break in our conversation, we will answer your call. The call-in number is 657-383-1132. Okay, so we are going to bring Amy on now. Hello, Amy. Hi, Sumi. Hi there. I'm so glad that you were willing to step in for my no-show, not she didn't show up, but my non-existent other guest. So I'm really happy that you're here. Welcome. Thank you. Yeah, sorry you had those technical difficulties internationally. Hopefully those get ironed out next time. It's always a challenge, isn't it, uh, when we're crossing continents? <laughs> Yeah, I was so, so um, excited to have to somebody from Australia where, yeah, so for, for her, it's like here it's Tuesday evening, and for her it was Wednesday morning, so I thought that was kind of cool that we were going to be talking across the the international dateline, but maybe we'll do that again in the future. So, um, Amy, one thing I want to tell you since we didn't, I didn't have a chance to prep you is that there's a little bit of a delay in the way you and I hear each other, so if we both start talking at the same time, just defer to me, and I'll probably just say, please continue. Great. Okay. So I want to start out by, like, having you introduce yourself. Um, tell us how you like to be known and, you know, your full name, whatever name you want to give, and then, um, you know, what you do and what your background and experience is. So I'm going to give you, you know, five minutes or so to talk about that. Go ahead. Thanks, Sumi. I'm Amy Claire, and... I do coaching and facilitation and embodiment work, helping people to come to know and feel alive uh, in a way that might be more vibrant than they have been currently. And there's there's a longing to, to feel more alive, especially to feel more alive in your body and to be more able to access that throughout your life, whether it's in a meeting or while you're parenting or in your friendships and in your sexual relationships. So uh, my own journey has given me opportunities to do a lot of growth and learning, and I am really passionate about helping other people access ways of living that tap into our full range of emotion and experience um, from grief and sadness and sorrow to what has not been that we've wanted in the past to the longing that ultimately leads us if we follow that longing to the things that give us deep joy and to be able to uh, experience that full range and especially in an embodied way. And I do that 
through work with groups and facilitation. I've been studying communications and doing work with peer coaching to professional coaching since I was 16 and also do that through one-on-one work and work with people in relationships of any configuration. And another big part of my work is that all those things I just mentioned, I do those in person or on the phone or in Zoom, and I also do them in the water. The water is a place of accessing so much of the flow of who we are. And so for me, I do aquatic body work, and I also do facilitation of workshops and individual coaching into feeling freedom and feeling the nervous system have a chance to be held and relaxed and to access the spaces of joy that can come and also hold space for the sadness and grief that lives in each of us because of our histories and our longings. So that's, um, that's in a nutshell uh, my passions and my work. Thank you so much, Amy. And um, can you briefly... Um we talked the other night for um, quite a while about your history, and so I know that, that, you know, all of us have a complex, nuanced history. But just briefly about, like, I was so impressed with where you came from, like the type of family you grew up in and, and how much you've flowered and evolved in your life from where you started. Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about your story? Yeah, I'll do a, a short version now, and there's other opportunities to hear more later. Um, I grew up in a culture and family and religion and education that didn't value the body. I, in my mid-30s, realized that I had lived my entire life as if I didn't have a body. Um, the times that I was only, the only times that I was really aware of my body were in terms of limitation. I knew that I wished I could run faster, and I also wished I could breathe better when I swam. I was on a swim team for all of my elementary school, middle school, and high school, and even despite that, had the experience that, gosh, I wish I could breathe better. And um, other than those two awarenesses of, of limitation, I lived my life in my head, and I excelled at academics as a kid and was really praised for that in my family. And um, I enjoyed thinking about things. And I would dip into my heart as well. I had, I had a lot of passion for issues and for suffering in the world. But um, mostly, mostly in my head, and I enjoyed the life of the mind. I studied philosophy, and that's, that's where I was. And then it dawned on me how strange it was that, I'm walking on this earth in a body, and that's a pretty meaningful thing. And that I didn't really know anything about my body. I wasn't friends with my body. I had a family history of a knowing that my mother was never happy with her body, and um, there was a sense that uh, our bodies were just kind of in the way of something we had to deal with. And I wanted to shift that. And I adopted several practices. I decided to spend a year getting to know my body more. And just awareness was a big part of that. And also dance and yoga. 
uh, were amazing opportunities for me to learn presence and stillness in a way that was beyond the kind of spiritual pause for meditation that I had as a practice in my life. It was another way of experiencing the world through my body, through senses and through awareness of what my body does and what it can do. And I started that, not surprisingly, given how I came to that point, I started that being aware of limitations and being so self-conscious. And remember at my first yoga class, thinking, oh my gosh, everyone's going to be looking at me. And that was horrifying to me. That was just, just mortifying to think that because I wasn't confident in what my body could do. And it took me a few classes. My friends and colleagues that I was at yoga, we, we had the opportunity to do yoga at lunch uh, at the university we were at, and they said, hey, um, people, do you know people actually focus on their own thing? They really won't be looking at you. And sure enough, after two or three classes, I saw that, and what that invited me to was a realization that this is a gift I get to give myself. This time of being focused on what my body can do, I can be aware and think about what it can't do, um, but it doesn't serve me much to stay there. But if I keep working at things and being curious, curiosity is a big part of something I, I hold space for and encourage in my work and also in my own practice because through curiosity, I have learned so much about myself and it has helped me um, take away the judgments that say I should be a certain way or that, um, oh, it's bad that I didn't have this awareness before, didn't know how to do this before. The truth is none of us knew how to do anything when we entered this world, and we learned it as we went. And uh, part of that return for me was a return to a joy of discovery that has always been part of my being and realizing that can apply to my body as well. Um, not just intellectual concepts, not just solving problems, but I can bring that joy of discovery to what my body can do. And mm. in those, I had just, yeah, such experiences of um, uh, confusion sometimes of like, can I do this? And doubt. And then also um, sadness. My first couple of dance classes, I just wept through them. And mm-hmm. it was those good tears though. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well thank you um, for realize. sharing that. I was so I was so touched by your story when we talked the other night because, you know, you talked about one of your siblings kind of going in the opposite direction from you or they're kind of like shut down and, and my sibling and I also kind of went in separate directions. So there there's a lot of just who you are in that where you just felt that it wasn't right to just be a, a brain with no body and, and you had a longing and you sought out the, uh, the resources you grow in that way. And now when I think of you, and I think when most people think of you, Amy, they, they do see this person who's so in her body that is so in her pleasure and joy. And, you know, I think just by looking at you, you know, people often think like, I want that. I want to be that in my joy and, and that, you know, have that kind of mm. access to my pleasure so, yeah, it's really beautiful to, to behold in you. <laughs> mm, thank you. Yeah, it feels good so to be seen um, that we're way. Getting, 
Yeah, I'm sorry to not give you more time to answer that piece. I want to move on to the metamorph topic because we, we only have about 15 minutes left. Um, but the metamorph topic is an interesting one. Um, you know, Amy and I were talking about leading a workshop on it, so I started, you know, writing about it and thinking about it. And some people really choose to not know their metamorphs, and that's okay. Like, I honor people for their choices for whatever reason. And we, we all have to honor ourselves for where we are in our journey and never try to be more evolved than we are. You know, this is common if you've been practicing non-monogamy for a while. You think like, oh, why am I feeling jealous? I shouldn't be feeling jealous. You know, I should be feeling this way. But we really have to practice just being in our truth about how we're feeling and owning that, even if you feel stupid about it and vulnerable. Like, you just have to own it because it'll never change if you're denying it and trying to pretend that it's not there. So if you're not ready to be close to your metamors, if you really want to have separate dyads, you know, that's okay. But what I want to share is how wonderful it is since I've started leaning into the metamor relationship. Um, I find that if I think of when my partner meets someone new or I meet somebody who already has a partner, I just think of it as like, wow, instant friends. I didn't even have to go out and work for them or, or you know, seek them out. <laughs> I have an opportunity for, you know, more family, more love, more connection. And, um, can I share so what that's it was like one... to first meet you as a metamorph? Yeah, let me, can you just hold that thought? I just want to briefly um, summarize and then I want to give you a chance to talk about it too. Um, so as I've leaned into that, I find that the closer friendship I can make with my metamor, the more it becomes where I am basically just sharing something I love with a friend. Um, so, for example, if Amy and I were friends and I found this really great restaurant or I found a really great place to um, snorkel, we just went snorkeling today, you know, I'd be like, oh, my God, i got to take you to the snorkel place, you know. Um, so it just becomes, our, our lover becomes another thing that we share and that we negotiate um, our needs around because we also love each other and want each other to be happy and believe that there can be a win-win if we negotiate at the level of needs. That's what I was talking about earlier, negotiating at the level of needs. So when you practice those good communication skills, you can trust that you can do that with your metamor as well. We're really blessed because we're in a community that practices this. That's why I said community, community, community. We're in a community that practices this kind of communication and has a soft landing place for when you have strong emotions. It's so important to have that. So it's not, I'm not saying it's easy and it has taken years of practice to get here. But leaning into the metamorph relationship and looking for friendship there has made it so much softer for me. In the beginning, I used to have all these fantasies about my metamorphs before I met them, like, oh, they're going to be taller, blonder, skinnier, bustier. They're going to have larger orgasms. They're going to get wetter. Like all these comparisons that I would make in my head. And then when I met the person, it was like, oh, they're just a human being, you know. <laughs> like They're kind of cool. So, um yeah, it allows me to stay out of that fantasy in my head when I actually meet the person and see that they're a full human being with their wonderful parts, their flaws, their insecurities, all their things. And the more we can love each other as metamors, the happier the whole family will be. Okay, I'm going to stop there and let you share whatever you want to share about it, Amy. Thank you. 
I love you using the lens of friendship. Uh, that's such a, a sweet way, even if it is an aspiration. Um, it just it does soften things. And uh, I really want to tell this story of my experience of meeting you as a metamorph for the first time. And I wanted to make sure that uh, out of some kind of humility, we're, we're going to stay in the uh, explanation and, and not... Uh, let me tell this lovely thing about you. <laughs> um, it was such such a phenomenal experience having met you know other metamors and and knowing that natural nervousness that does arise inside of people. When I met you for the first time, having heard about you from the love that we had in common and having heard his enthusiasm for you, and I was excited to meet you, and that that was cool because um, it was nice to have heard so many lovely things about you. And this moment of, for the first time, being face-to-face to each other and seeing this genuine smile, you looked me in the eye with uh, such welcome and vulnerability of presence. It was high. Like you, you greeted me with, as a blank slate. I didn't feel like there were any stories about me that I had to live up to or disprove. And there was such a warmth in your smile that I felt like anything was possible in our friendship. And that was mm. such an amazing experience to feel that from you. Mm, thank you. What else you got to say about the metamorph relationship? It can definitely take a lot of different forms. And I heard you say earlier how important it is to honor where we are in the journey and to honor the style of relationship that feels like it resonates with us. And as well, the style of connection with metamorph. Um, sometimes for myself, uh, I have the capacity to add new friends and, you know, be doing all the excitement and sometimes work of new friendships and negotiations and navigations. And sometimes I don't. And sometimes um, if, I, if I'm not in a space of having the energy and time in my life for really getting to know someone else, it's important for me to honor that and know that at this time in this season, I want to be friendly and kind to a metamor, and uh, we might not have the opportunity to develop a friendship. And in the case of you and me, we've known each other for several years now, and it's only much more recently that we've had time to spend more time together that our friendship has gone to another level. The friendship was building over all these years. So honoring that the metamor connections can look a lot of different ways. For me, I think the most important is to show up with vulnerability to that and uh, to try to have a blank slate of, I want to find out who you are as a person. I might have heard stories about you from the love we have in common. I might have heard stories about you from other people we know. And I just want to find out who you are, what my experience is, and, and to be welcoming I think a lot is possible when we show up to one another with welcome. And then the other piece that I think is really significant to show up with that vulnerability and actually speak the words of 
gosh, I'm kind of nervous to meet you, or I, um, I would like this to be smooth, and I have concerns that I may not have as much time as I would like with this love, and is that something we could talk about together sometime? Mm-hmm. Um, whatever yeah. those feelings are that are vulnerable, that it's, it's worth speaking them because um, it makes it possible then to, like you said, address the needs. I like that you talked about the universal needs um, and right. use that resource. Yeah, something came up for me when you were sharing around the power dynamic with, uh, I talked about couples privilege earlier. And um, when I'm in like a, a pre-existing relationship with somebody you know, been going on for a while, and then I'm going to meet my metamor who's, like, come into the relationship later, I usually have more power. Even though I may feel threatened by this person, I may feel scared that they're maybe younger, prettier, richer, whatever the thing is, you know. For men, it might be, you know, I heard they have a bigger cock or they have more hair than me or whatever, you know, whatever our insecurities are. We may be feeling those insecurities, but if we're in the existing relationship, we have more power. And so keep that in mind that they're feeling even more insecure than I am because I have established relationships. So when I'm in that position where I'm in the established relationship, I try to be extra warm and welcoming to the person um, because I know as insecure as I'm feeling, they're feeling even more. So something to keep that in mind that, mm. that you can be the one that's the, the hostess, the welcomer, the, mm. the inclusive person, instead of like making it even harder for them, you know. Yeah, I'm inspired by that about the capacity we each have to help set the tone that mm-hmm. that can go such a long way, whatever spot we're on of existing, pre-existing or not. Um, but to, to envision how I would like this to feel and set that tone in the way we interact. And even if sometimes it's necessary to get support from a friend, if there's kind of more nervousness and uneasiness, to prepare for that, that kind of a meeting and for a conversation, even if it's casual. If we know that, you know, that I have, I have some anxiety, that I can work on that somewhere else so that I can come really, really clear and, bring the enthusiasm that I'd like to and the welcome that I'd like to and set that tone that way. Right. Right. Yeah. That's important. Um, because yeah, I remember the first time I met, I was dating a married man. The first time I met his wife, I was so nervous. I drank like a, about a gallon of diet Coke before going to see her. And then I was talking 90 miles an hour. <laughs> I was so nervous. So I love what you said about like getting support from other people to calm your nervous system before you go meet them. Um, that's something I offer now. I've had sessions where I've helped the metamors meet for their first time. We do it online, but at least they have support for their first meeting. So that's something I can offer to people as well. So boy, we're we're out of time already. Um, we just have about three more minutes. Um, so is there another aspect of the metamor relationship that you've been thinking about, Amy, that you'd like to talk about in the last few minutes here? Yeah, there's also what you just said is, is something that's been on my mind. It brings it around to that idea of community, uh, to really 
rely on community and look for community because when there are things that can feel like jabs, it can really help to have support, to have somewhere to talk about that. And also, there are times when despite our best efforts, things don't go smoothly. And to affirm that it's okay to retreat a little and have some self-care and get grounded within ourselves again and that that's it's all right if, if if things don't really go as smoothly as hoped to to just take a little pause and we can always try again later better to do that than to force something where it's not going smoothly because you know once some words come out of our mouths we don't get to take them back and um we can repair and that's also valuable I know you could do work and help people talking about repair. That's further down in your alphabet. And that um, we can do repair within our relationships with our loves and partners. And we can also do repair in metamorph relationships. And um, it's it's worthwhile to put energy there. Yeah, and just know, like, we're all human. We're going to screw up. We're all making this up as we go. And, you know, those of us that have been trudging the road a little longer have some tools but you really aren't going to learn until you get out there and do it. It's just like having, you know, raising a child. You try to help them, but they're going to have to go out there and learn on their own. So, you know, just know that we're all doing the best we can and try to have a lot of forgiveness and understanding for people. Um, one of the things farther down in my alphabet is the word sovereignty. And when I do my jealousy workshops, sovereignty is really going through all of the concepts I teach around managing and transforming your jealousy to remember that you and your partner are different people. Yes, there's a connection there, a deep connection and a feeling of oneness in those times that you share great sex or important things in your life, milestones. There's a connection and a oneness, but you're still also individual people. So don't forget to also maintain that self-sovereignty so that you're not going to your partner for everything. You should have other friends, other community members, other coaches, therapists, people you can go to for support um, so that you're not asking everything of your partner. So I'm glad you brought that that up, Amy. Yeah, that's a great point about not expecting all of our resourcing to come from a partner. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, we are about out of time, and I want to thank you again for jumping in at the last minute, Amy. It was so delightful. I'll have you back on another time for the whole hour. (laughs) Well, this was really fun, and may I share my email address if anything about my work resonated that folks would like to contact me? Great. Please do. Amy, Amy at amyclairecoaching.com, and that's A-M-Y at a-M-Y-C-L-A-R-E coaching.com. Perfect. Thank, thank you so much. Thank you, Sumi. It was really fun. I'm glad this worked. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. So next week on Leading Edge Love, we have somebody who's not calling internationally, so it should be fine. Um, Marie Tawin. She just recently did her um, PhD um, dissertation on compersion. So I'm sure we'll talk about that as well as other things. So please join us next week at 6 p.m. Pacific time at blogtalkradio.com for Leading Edge Love Radio. And this has been your host, Sumati Sparks. Talk to you later.